If you have a Bible, <laughs> let's go to the book of Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to spend about 15 minutes wandering through the Old Testament scriptures before we get to Luke. Uh, we are in a long series on the book of Luke, and, uh, and sometimes uh, we feel the need to do some Old Testament work before we get there because Luke, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is pulling together stuff that you just miss without a bit of Old Testament background. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. Now, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything and declares it to be good. He creates human beings. He nestles them in the Garden of Eden. He invites them into a trusting, loving relationship that lasts for all of two chapters. They disobey. Sin and death enter the world. And as a result of that, according to Genesis, God levels a series of judgments. He levels a series of judgments against the man, against the woman, but also against the serpent. Who And the serpent is the character in the story that tempts our first parents into disobedience. And notice what God says to the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity or animosity between you, serpent, and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. Now, it's interesting because grammatically you've got a little something going on here, right? You all, you're talking about, God says, all of a sudden, okay, there's going to be a war now between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And then you go from plural offspring, and then you meet a he, just a singular he right in the middle of the verse. This he will come and war against the serpent and will be wounded in the process, but will defeat the serpent. So very early in the story, this is the first promise or hint that we get that God is going to do something about putting the universe back to the way he intended it. And we get a glimpse of a he who is coming to wage war against this cosmic enemy. Go, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. The story continues and it gets worse as sin and death and the effects of sin and death ripple throughout all of creation. Out of nowhere, we meet a man named Abram, who we know as Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, he kind of just drops into the story. Notice this, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. And then in my Bible, it's indented, which means this is a poetic sort of promise that God's making with Abram. I will make you into a great nation, which means you'll have many descendants. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. So, in Genesis 3, we read of a he who's going to be the offspring of a woman who wages war against this cosmic enemy. And then in Genesis 12, it gets a little narrower, because now it's not just any offspring of a woman. It's from this line of descendants that Abraham is going to receive from God. And from that line will come a blessing to the whole world. Go to Genesis 49. Now, it's going to get a bit more painful, and you're thinking, it's painful already, and it's going to get worse for about 10 more minutes. The reason I I do a lot of Old Testament background is because we are the most Old Testament illiterate folks in the history of the planet. It's It's like... God was mad, and then Jesus shows up, and now God's happy. And, and that's kind of our, it's the sum of our Old Testament theology. And, and the problem is, of course, Jesus was Jewish. His followers were Jewish. Your Bible's written by Jewish folks, right? I mean, Luke, 
the, the best guess is that Luke wasn't Jewish, but hung around the first disciples and recorded their preaching and their teaching. So, so the idea that you and I can kind of just drop in on Jesus and that Jesus sort of appears in a vacuum. Yes, you can appreciate him and yes, you can worship him and give your life to him. But there's so much of what the gospel accounts are doing that you miss when you aren't tuned in to so many of the Old Testament sort of promises and things that are recorded in the scripture. So um, Genesis 49 is another one of those texts that for the Jewish audience of Jesus, they would have known this text. So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob gets renamed Israel and has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And right at the end of Jacob's life, he's blessing his 12 sons. And blessing back in those days often served as a prophetic sign for the destiny of the children. So he blesses a son named Judah. Genesis 49, verse 10. Notice this phrase. The scepter, and what's a scepter? Kind of a royal staff, right? The scepter, I got some ladies reenacting scepters right right here. The scepter will not depart from Judah. So Judah's tribe. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So, Genesis 3, offspring of a woman, will come to wage war against the enemy. Genesis 12, offspring of Abraham. Now it gets narrower from the offspring of Abraham. Now it's going to be offspring of Judah. There will be some royal Uh, This ruler, this kingly person from the tribe of Judah who will hold a scepter and command the obedience of the nations. Flip over to Exodus chapter 4. Now we've got about six more of these. Joy to the world. Exodus chapter 4. Israel then grows from 12 sons to a whole nation of people. So there's 12 tribes. They find themselves enslaved to Egypt. God raises up a deliverer in Moses. And he tells Moses, notice this, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. When you go to confront Pharaoh, who is the ruler, hi Eric, who is the ruler of, you can't walk in like halfway down, Mikey, and not not get something. And I like how jammed in you are. You guys look really roomy and comfortable right there. I know, it's very, I know, I know. We're huge fans of personal space here, and we just, uh, I know, I know, I know, I know. That's why I'm up here. I got loads of space up here. So, Uh, What were we talking about? Pharaoh. So Moses is commanded to go tell Pharaoh, verse 22, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. So Israel is called God's firstborn son. And I told you, Pharaoh, let my son go so that he might worship me. So part of the story becomes this people, this collective group of Israel, becomes one of the ways it's known as God's son. Flip over, if you would, uh, to 2 Samuel. And if you don't know where 2 Samuel is, it's right after. 1 Samuel. I know, never gets old. Never gets old. 1 Samuel. We'll go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, uh, the Samuels... Uh, include the uh, reign of a king, the most famous king of Israel named King David. And David is kind of the prototype king. And at one point in the story, King David wants to build God a temple where God's name can reside forever. And God says to David, your hands are too bloody, you've been engaged in too much warfare, so 
I'm not going to let you build a house for me. But instead, says to David, I'm going to build you a house. And by a house, he means I'm going to give you a, a household, a line of descendants. And notice this kind of epic promise. Second Samuel 7, verse, uh, second part of verse 11. This is from a prophet to David. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, so when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. Now, literally, this happens with, through a man named Solomon. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the promise keeps getting narrower. Genesis 3, from a woman, right? The offspring of a woman. Genesis 12, the offspring of Abraham. Genesis 49, the offspring of Judah. This is narrower every time. And now we read in 2 Samuel about a king who will sit on David's throne in the future. So this is going to be, according to Genesis 3, someone who strikes against the serpent. According to Genesis 12, someone who's a blessing to the nations. According to Genesis 49, um, somebody who... Uh, rules and reigns. And according to 2 Samuel, this is going to be a king in the line of David. And so by the time of Jesus, the idea of a Davidic Messiah was central to the concept of Messiah, that someone would come who would rule and reign over Israel and who would do for Israel what David did for Israel, which was give them and fight for their freedom. Now, we read a little more about this king in Psalm chapter 2. Again, stick with me, payoff coming. Psalm chapter 2. And if you're completely lost, you're not alone. But I want to just get these glimpses in view before we land in the book of Luke. So Psalm chapter 2. This is one of the most important psalms. This is called an enthronement psalm. And it was sung or read during the installation of a king. And notice how the king is spoken of. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why did the nations conspire and people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his, what's your Bible say? Anointed. Now, Jesus Christ, all right, Christ, boom. Christ isn't Jesus' last name, okay? His parents weren't named Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Christ is a title from a Hebrew word that means anointed one. Okay, so this is where we get this. So, in Psalm chapter 2, God speaks of people rising up against Him and against His anointed one. And notice, the, the nations cry out, verse 3, Let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. The one in heaven, excuse me, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger, terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. And so now the psalmist says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. God said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. In other words, we read about this, this king who is installed on Zion. And God says of this king, you are my son. Today I've become your Father, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. Now, again, this just moves the story further another little bit. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 42. Two more. Isaiah 42 and then Hosea. In case you need to consult your uh, table of contents on that one. Hosea 40, or no, Isaiah 42, excuse me. 
So, from 2 Samuel and Psalm 2 and many other passages, the Jews developed a concept of Messiah that was Davidic. In other words, it was like David. It was a Davidic throne, a Davidic Messiah, a Davidic king, someone who would come and overthrow the Romans, somebody who would come and deliver the people into freedom. Meanwhile, in the book of Isaiah, we're introduced to somebody called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord, there's a lot of debate over who that servant is, because sometimes the servant seems like it's a people, and other times the servant seems like it's a person representing a people. And then through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus, like in Isaiah 53, we read about a suffering servant who takes upon himself the sins of the world. And so there were interesting things said about this servant who again became a messianic figure. Notice chapter 42, verse 1. God says to the prophet, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my what? My spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nation. So think about what we've seen. Genesis 3. Okay, early part of the story. God will send a he, a singular person who is an offspring of a woman, so a human being, to come to wage war against our cosmic adversary. Next stage over. This will not just be any offspring of a woman, but come through specifically through a descendant of a man named Abram, who will be formed into a nation, and this descendant will be a blessing to the world. That gets more specific in Genesis 49. It will come through the tribe of Judah, not the 11 others, but through specifically through this tribe of Judah. Even more specific in 2 Samuel, from the line of David, and will be some sort of kingly figure that we read about in Psalm 2 that will have some sort of father-son sort of thing going on between God and this king. And then you take it another step and you realize this person will be a servant of Yahweh, anointed by God's Holy Spirit. And then lastly, flip over to Hosea chapter 11. And if you don't know where Hosea is, it's right before the book of Joel. You're welcome. I know, guys, Pro Bowl's on today. So it's a day without football, is what we're we're saying. Hosea chapter 11. Or just wait for it on the screen, either way. Now, I want you to notice how God refers to Israel again. We saw this in Exodus, but here it is again. Hosea 11, verse 1. God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Matthew uses this uh, in his gospel. We're not going to look at that. But I want you to notice a couple places we saw in Exodus and Hosea that Israel was called God's son. Now, All of that background was necessary to take us to Luke. And let's start in chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. See, back in the day, if you would have been hearing the words of Jesus, all this background you would have known. I mean, these were the promises you lived by. These were the promises you lived under. These were the things you put your hope in. Many of the Jews had most of the Old Testament memorized. And so you would have just known this stuff. I mean, but we have to do all this extra work to kind of get us just the merest basics to appreciate now what Luke's going to do with Jesus. Luke chapter 1, and I just want to remind you of a couple of words that are used of Jesus. Go to verse uh, 31. Remember that angel appears to Mary and says first what you always have to say if you're an angel. Don't be afraid. And then you will conceive... 
and give birth to a son. You are to call him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called, what? Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father. Okay, so that's Second Samuel. I mean, right there. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. That's Genesis 49. His kingdom will never end. Oh yeah, that's Second Samuel 7. So again, you're hearing this and you go, wow, this is really a big deal. Jump down, if you would, to verse 35. The angel answered Mary, because Mary said, well, how is exactly is going to this work? Is this going to work because I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born to you will be called what? The Son of God. Now, this phrase, the Son of God, is very, very important for Luke. And the next series of scriptures we're going to look at highlights what it means for Jesus to be called Son of God. Flip over to Luke chapter 3. Okay, now this is our text for this morning. That was all intro. Luke chapter 3. Now we've read and we've been kind of immersed in the account of the ministry of a guy named John the Immerser. John the Baptizer. Who was summoning Israel in his role as preparer of Israel for the Messiah's coming. He was summoning Israel to a baptism or an immersion of repentance. He was calling Israel to prepare the way for God's return among them in the form of Messiah by undergoing uh, an immersion, a baptism. And this would have been offensive to some of Israel. For some who were humble enough to receive it and recognize their own contribution to Israel's sin, they received it and then they were invited to live something called the fruit of repentance, which was a lifestyle aligned with God's justice and righteousness in the world. But there were others who just simply said, no way, we're God's chosen people. We don't, why do we have to repent? It's the nations that need repentance and they didn't participate in John's ministry. And Luke later on suggests that your openness to John was totally equivalent to your openness to Jesus. Not exactly, but pretty much. And Jesus now comes to be baptized in this baptism. Notice Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, a couple of questions right off the bat. First of all, why is Jesus getting baptized if he's perfect? Right? I mean, if this is a baptism of repentance, Jesus doesn't need to repent, does he? No. So why would Jesus be baptized? Thoughts? What? This is what I was learning right now, just a lot of this. I just did. What? An example. Mikey, gold star for you, yes. As an example, yes. Oh, give him the fist. Nice. What else? Identity? Somebody say identity over here. Well, well done, sir. In the midst of the high school students, as you look to be in high school yourself, Yeah, that Jesus was identifying with Israel in both its need for redemption and in validating the ministry of John. So he's almost validating John's part in redemptive history by saying, yes, this baptism is authoritative. Yes, this baptism is legit. We are reconstituting almost a new and repentant Israel out of John's ministry. And so Jesus says, absolutely, I'm identifying with that. Right? So it's an example, yes, No question about it. It's solidarity with both sinful humanity and repentant humanity, absolutely. 
And, and I think it's Jesus also patiently submitting to the way his father had drawn out salvation history, that John would come first and that Jesus would come out of John's ministry. And so Jesus himself receives this baptism even though he personally didn't need to do it. That raises another question though. What's with the dove? Right? The spirit comes down in the form of a dove. And, you know, before dove was soap, dove was... You had a, there, there was, there, and there's all kind of guesses. Luke doesn't say what the dove represents. Now, we understand dove to represent Holy Spirit, but that's in part because of this passage. So there are all kind of guesses about what the dove represents. Let me give you a couple, just for you theology geeks who are like me, who find this stuff interesting. Uh, dove, of course, is a sacrifice, a, a sacrificial animal. And in Luke chapter 2, Jesus' parents offer a dove when they dedicate him. Another idea is that there, there are hints in the book of Genesis that when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the water, the Spirit of God hovered over the water like a dove. Now, you won't read that in the Hebrew. You'll have to, you'll have to read something called an, a targum. Now, stick with me for 30 seconds, okay? Israel, they speak Hebrew. They get exiled into the nations, and one of the languages that develops is something called Aramaic. Aramaic was related to Hebrew, but you still had to, there was translation that needed to be done. So the Jews took the Old Testament and translated it into Aramaic with commentary. That combination of translation and commentary was called a targum. One of the targums we have from Jews before Jesus' day translates Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-1 is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2 is, and the Spirit of God was fluttering over the water like a dove. So one of the ways some Jews understood the earliest creation account is that there was a dove involved and that symbolized the Spirit. And so when you see Jesus receiving the spirit like a dove, you would have been drawn back to the creation account. And think about, just for a second, I don't know if this is true, but think about some of the parallels that are there. I don't know if this is what Luke had in mind or not, but think about some of the parallels, right? So in the creation account, the spirit hovers over water, right? In Jesus's baptism, Jesus comes out of the water and receives the spirit. In the creation account, God affirms his creation. In the baptism account, we're going to read, Jesus or God affirms this Jesus. In the creation account, immediately after creation, what happens? Adam and Eve are tempted by this enemy. And in Luke's account, immediately after Jesus' baptism, he's tempted by the enemy. So there's some thought that if you've got your Jewish ears on and you're hearing this, you might be thinking, oh, there's a bit of recreation going on here in and through this Jesus. So dove could mean that. And then here's one other thing that dove could mean. And again, this is all extra. Some of you are totally lost and uninterested. But because I have the microphone, I will share just a couple of more things. (laughs) So, so, because I, I mean, I find this stuff, why a dove? Luke doesn't tell us, why a dove? So, there, there's another way to look at the dove. Um, for Israel, before the time of Jesus, the prophetic voice, the voice of the prophets had died out. Since the latter prophets had died, the rabbis taught that God's prophetic voice through his prophets had stilled. 
But God still spoke through something called the echo voice or the daughter voice. And it was, when, it, when you read a voice comes from heaven, that was the language they used to describe this echo voice, that God no longer spoke through prophets, he now spoke directly in this echo voice. And they thought that the echo voice sounded like the cooing of a dove. So when God's going to speak words now, and it says, and you heard a voice from heaven, some of the Jews would have thought, oh, of course, this is how God speaks. So whether you think the dove is in reference to sacrifice, we see a dove obviously in the, um, the account of Noah as a symbol that God's you know, judgment has passed. There's all kind of imagery to it, but don't miss the big point. What God is doing here in this baptism is really and profoundly summing up that whole train of Old Testament stuff we looked at. Notice this, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my son. Now, if you got your Jewish ears on, that is Psalm chapter 2, baby. That is exactly Psalm chapter 2. That is the enthronement and installation of a new king right there. You are my son. Notice this phrase, whom I love and with you I am well pleased. That's straight from Isaiah 42, the suffering servant. What God has done is he has united two threads from the Old Testament. A conquering, Davidic, militaristic, triumphal Messiah and a suffering servant anointed by the Spirit of God blended them into one Messiah, the Lord Jesus of Nazareth, and has now validated, affirmed, and confirmed his identity as God's unique son. Right? The whole story has been building to just this moment. All of the hints about Jesus' identity, all of the announcements by the angels, all of the Old Testament promises, this was it. And to show you this is what Luke means, he does what you and I would all do after a big epic scene like this. He goes into a genealogy. And, and so I'm reading, I'm reading the one-year chronological Bible right now, every day. And, and when you get to the genealogies, I'm always really happy because I can, I can make a lot of progress in about 10 seconds. So, so genealogies, you know, they're not like the most exciting parts. But what Luke is doing is he's zeroing in on the identity as Jesus being God's son. So we have the father announce this, you are my son. But then notice the genealogy. And you're going to just think this is awesome. Luke chapter 3, verse 31. So uh, the genealogy in Matthew is different than this for reasons we can get into another time. Luke starts with uh, the more recent ancestors and goes all the way back. Matthew flips it and starts back and goes forward. Notice in Luke uh, 31, we read that Jesus is right in the middle there. Verse 31 of chapter 3, the son of David, which obviously was very important. And then jump down to verse 33. He is the son of Judah. Verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, right? Which is really critical. Jump over to verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. So what Luke has done is he has this voice from heaven, this dove descending. You are my son whom I love. You've got straight from Psalm 2, the king, and you've got straight from Isaiah 42, the anointed suffering servant. All of this gets wrapped up now in a genealogy. Why does that matter? Well, for Luke, the Messiah had to come and be the offspring of a woman. So he's the son of Adam and Eve. 
had to go through Abraham's descendants. He's the son of Abraham. Had to go through Judah, so he's the son of Judah. Had to go through David, he's the son of David. And all of this, again, if you've got your Jewish ears on, all of this is shouting to you very simply that Jesus isn't a great moral teacher. Jesus isn't another in a long line of prophets. Jesus isn't somebody who partial respect is due. Right? This is the promised one, the one for generations we've been praying for and asking for and crying out for. But what's so surprising is that it turns out the militaristic king and the suffering servant turn out to be the same guy. See, there were some who thought there were two messiahs that were going to come. One who would come as a king and another who would come as a priest. One who would come to conquer and one who would come to suffer. And what the baptism of Jesus says, no, 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 it's the same guy. It's not two messiahs coming once, but one messiah coming twice. And so you have unmistakably. And then, if that weren't like confirmation enough, look at chapter 4. Jesus is immediately driven into the wilderness. Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are what? Son of God. So Luke, in a way that is impossible to miss, is saying over and over and over and over and over, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the vast majority of you believe that, and so you're like, well, hey, this really isn't news. Like, that's why we're here today, because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. True, but we live in a world where Jesus is pretty highly respected, and I think lots of people would say that Jesus is the Son of God and not be clear exactly what that means. So all of these threads have been woven together to show us four different layers of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. And let me tell you why this matters, okay? I have, I love hanging out with Mormon missionaries that come to my front door. And, um, and so I got to know these particular, two particular guys and, and, you know, I mean, serve them lunch and just hang out and hear about their stories and where they're from and what it's like to be on mission and all of that. And, and one of the first things they said to me was, uh, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Um, well, we believe just like you do. We believe, uh, that Jesus is the son of God. Now, as we engaged in conversation over multiple meetings, what they meant by Son of God was totally different than what the Scripture means by Son of God. For, for Mormon theology, Jesus is literally the reproductive fruit of a, a union between a, a God the Mother and God the Father. And there are lots of sons of God because of that. The Scriptures are going to argue This is an unmistakable, forever, final, utter, and absolute category. There is nobody else. There is no one else like him. There's only one of these. And so, we live in a world where Jesus is highly respected, right? Jesus is my homeboy. I read at Urban Outfitters. And people in their t-shirts that have Jesus is my homeboy, which, you know, I guess. But, but we live in a world where Jesus is highly respected. Jesus is highly regarded, more so than his church. Right? Jesus is a great moral teacher. Jesus is a, is a great prophet. Jesus institutes a, one of the great world religions. The problem with all of that thinking 
is that it goes against the very documents we use to understand who Jesus is in the first place. In other words, him being a great moral teacher isn't left open as an option if you disagree with the assessment that Luke and the New Testament writers give. Because what they're suggesting is that Jesus as the Son of God is unrepeatable, unmistakable, undeniable evidence that God has done something utterly unique and salvific for human beings. That he has sent among us one of our own who, like us in every way except sinning, has taken upon himself all of the evil, all of the darkness, all of the wrath, all of everything that is bad in this place. And that through him we get to know what God is really like. So that's what's being said here. So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we're not saying like that this happens to anybody. <laughs> this, is, this is unique and there are four layers of meaning to it. Are you with me on this? Now, if you're here and you don't agree with that, well, that's great. My challenge to you is just read the book of Luke. Just read the book of Matthew. Just read the book of Mark. You don't have to take my word for some of this stuff. Read it yourself. Sit. If you've never read the Gospels, get a, get a blank notebook, open the Gospel of Luke, and write down every single question you have. Give me a call, and me or somebody will sit down with you and go through those questions. You don't have to shut your brain off to buy this stuff. But we do have to say that if you take it seriously, this is where it leads you. That Jesus is the unique one and only Son of God. Not in a biological sense, but in four senses that we're going to look at. Are you with me so far? Sense number one. The Son of God was a phrase that was used in the first century to describe what earthly rulers? Come on, we've looked at them. Caesars. So remember Caesar Augustus? We met him several weeks, months ago. He called himself Son of the Deified One. Divifilius, son of God. And that title became more prominent as the Caesars ruled. So to say that Jesus is the son of God is to make a political statement. Same with Jesus is Lord. The central affirmation of the early church is Jesus is Lord. Caesar is Lord was the central declaration of imperial worship. And so one of the points we've made before is simply the reason the Gospels use the same language as the Gospel of Caesar was because you had to pick. You couldn't use the same word to describe both. If you called Caesar one thing and Jesus another, you might be tempted to think, okay, well, I got all of them then. But to say that Jesus is the Son of God in the way the Bible means it means there's not another one of these. There's only one. The second level of meeting is to say that Jesus is the Son of God. Who else was called God's Son in the Old Testament? Remember, we looked at it in Exodus and Hosea. Who was called God's Son? Israel was called God's son. That's why I reference those passages, because to say that Jesus is the son of God is also to say Jesus fulfills the identity and destiny of Israel in his person. In other words, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Jesus is a light to the nations. Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations. Jesus is a blessing to the nations. Jesus fulfills in miniature Israel's destiny. How do we know this? Well, was Israel tempted in the wilderness? Yes. Is Jesus going to be tempted in the wilderness? Yes. And the temptations of Jesus, as we'll see, are responded to by Jesus using the very texts from the lessons that Israel learned by her failure in the wilderness. In other words, Jesus succeeds where Israel had failed. So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Israel of God too. 
Third meaning. In the Bible, when you say that you are son of something, it means that you share in a likeness with that thing. So, in the book of Acts, there's a man named Barnabas, whose name means son of, anyone know? Encouragement. Now, it's not because his mother was named Encouragement that he was named Son of Encouragement. It was because he was like that. He was an encouraging guy, and you read that. Or James and John in the Gospels are called the Sons of? It's not because their dad was named Thunder. They were called the Sons of Thunder because they were a bit rash. They were a bit volatile, right? At one point, they're cruising through Samaria. They come across a village that doesn't welcome them or Jesus. They go to Jesus and say, let's call down some fire on these guys. Let's nuke them, is what they say, right? And Jesus, (laughs) no. I mean, so to say that Jesus is Son of God... In the way the scripture means it, Jesus is the revealer of what God is like. And this is all throughout the New Testament. We've looked at this before. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He is, in the book of Hebrews, the exact representation of God's being. He is, in Jesus' words, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, he is the true, final arbiter of what God is like. Every other picture of God up till then is true, but not complete until you get to Jesus. And then the last meaning is that Jesus is the kingly Messiah that was promised, the one to deliver us from our sins, the one to deliver us out of bondage, the king that was promised to come. In the Old Testament, when you chose a king, there were four things that happened. God would choose the king, the king would be confirmed by a prophet, the king would be anointed with oil, symbolizing the spirit, the king would be sent out into battle and have a military victory to demonstrate he was God's chosen. This happens with Saul, this happens with David, and now you have an account where Jesus is chosen by God, anointed by the spirit, confirmed by the prophet John, and now sent into battle to succeed against a cosmic enemy that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. Men and women, the whole story comes to fulfillment and completion in him. And to say that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God doesn't mean that we're affirming some creed, although it includes that. It means something far more radical than that. That the salvation and work offered by Jesus has each of these four dimensions to it. In other words, there's a political dimension to following Jesus. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say there is no other Lord, including me. To say that Jesus is the true Israel means he is the light to the world. He is the standard, the authority, the inspired guide to everything that we live, breathe, and do. To say that Jesus is God's son is to say that God turns out to be like Jesus, which, by the way, is such good news for those of us that grew up in homes where God was the cosmic cop waiting for you to screw up, or God was the divine watchmaker who just kind of winds the universe up and then lets it go and is uncaring. To say that God is like Jesus means that God pursues the worst of us. He was never afraid or ashamed to be seen with failures, screw-ups, sinners, and outcasts. Men and women, if this is what God is like, this is great news for us. Because we're just sitting (laughs) as a room full of screw-ups and misfits and outcasts. And then lastly, to say that Jesus is the Son of God is to say that Jesus is Messiah. He comes as God's rescuer to reconcile us back to God. Why? Because God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. Whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. So when we say 
And when the scriptures say that Jesus is the Son of God, it doesn't mean he was some great moral teacher. doesn't mean he was a good prophet or a great example. It means that he was the unique, unrepeatable, and forever definition and revealer of what God's innermost being is like. Come to not only conquer, but to die for the very people he's conquering. I mean, the absurdity of Jesus's kingdom, that he is the glorious, triumphant vanquisher of enemies. And how does he vanquish them? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he comes as a suffering servant, and we believe he comes again in full glory. And so you and I are just faced, as always, with the choice of whether to believe this testimony. And I believe there are a few of you here who just don't buy it. And I love that you're here. And I always feel compelled just to simply say, listen, this Jesus isn't a religious hangover. It's not a figment of our collective imagination. We believe that you can taste and see that he is good and real. And if any time you ever want to find out more about what following this Jesus looks like, we always have folks after the services over here in this room marked prayer. I would just encourage you, urge you to go talk to one of those folks. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do this once a month, and we do this out of obedience to the Scriptures, where the Scriptures command us, in remembrance of Jesus, to take bread and to take the cup. And so we do it in a way that doesn't really represent all of the imagery of the original Passover that Jesus celebrated. For the earliest Christians, communion was a great big meal. For us, it's a little cracker and some juice, you know? We miss, we miss a little bit. But one of the reasons why we think there's significance to the bread, to the juice, is because it is a testimony of God's identity in Jesus and his work for us. That you and I, through faith in this Jesus, come to the place where we take the bread and the cup in recognition of the fact that God himself offered himself in our place so that we could be made right with him. And so this bread and this cup stand for, point to, symbolize a sign of a covenant now that exists between God and his people. That no one's good enough, no one's worthy enough, no one's cleaned up enough, but any who would call upon the name of God would be saved. And so we simply call again and again and again. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not real sure about all of this, no one is going to stand at the end of your aisle and count crackers and cups of grape juice. So please let those go right by. All right, we're going to invite our team forward. They're going to hand out the elements. Would you hold them both, the bread and the cup, until we take them together? So Father... We, your people, come to be reminded of what we so often forget. We come, God, to be reminded of your great love, your great holiness, your zeal for your name, your relentless pursuit of your people. And God, we stop to just simply say yes again to you. Yes, again. Yes, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we ask you, mighty God, to come and to stir in us the worship, the gratitude appropriate to that declaration. And so we take this bread and we take this cup 
not only in obedience, but with joyful celebration of the fact that we can now stand right before you. So we bless you, Father. We bless you, Jesus. And we bless you, Holy Spirit. Amen.